What do a school teacher, product engineer, and professional ballerina have in common? They're now all in sales. I'm Morgan Smith, and I'm your host for this special five-part series on breaking into tech sales. I'm having special conversations with sellers from non-traditional backgrounds, unpacking their story and discussing what they learned on their journey into tech. Now, on to today's episode. Today, I get the joy and pleasure to talk with Caspian Lukey, who is half man, half meme, 100% senior SDR at Gong. And uh, Caspian, thanks for coming on the show. I'm excited to chat with you. <laughs> well, thank you, Morgan. I'm, I'm excited to be here. And uh, yeah, I appreciate the call out of half man, half meme. It's a goofy, goofy headline, but it's the only one I got. So I appreciate the shot. Your meme game on LinkedIn is unparalleled. Uh, it's extraordinary. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's, uh, you know, what's funny is we, I joke with my team, like, I don't know if I'm actually that funny, but I am determined. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, I'm spaghetti on a wall, you know, one of them's got to be good. Exactly. I honestly, I do think you're uh, the number of memes that you continue to post that elicit a good chuckle out of me. So you're making somebody laugh. If, if, if I'm the only person laughing, then so be it. Uh, but I'm laughing just so you know. <laughs> I appreciate that. I've, and I settle for nose exhales, you know, like those half laughs. I'm, I'm fine with those as well. So I appreciate that. Well, gosh, I'm so glad you're here, not just because I want to talk a little bit about how you found yourself making memes on LinkedIn, but I also was really excited to have this conversation because your background is one that we haven't touched on yet in this series, and that's finance. And I continue to have conversations with Nick about like what sort of skills and expertise like finance can lend sellers and how you know, different sellers with those backgrounds seem to think about problems a little differently. So we'll get into that. Maybe where we should start was, what was your first job? Where did you start in your career? What did you start with? That's a really good question, because I could give multiple answers. What truly my first job was in terms of not out of college, but like in college, was I worked in one of those kiosks in the middle of the mall, selling clothes, selling this like off brand uh, clothing line, which was exciting. Also scary because you got to kind of engage people by interrupting their day. So that was my first ever paid job where I made some amount of money, which was like, exciting. So that that's my, and I haven't thought about that in years. So that was my first job ever. Wow. That's amazing. So you have this like sales-esque you know, experience before you graduate with a degree, I presume business of some kind. Yeah. And then econ. you launch, oh, econ. Awesome. And then you go and work in finance, right? Yes. Yes. I knew. So, you know, I was really always interested in business, which sounds vague. And I think a lot of people are interested in business. Simply for me, it was understanding why businesses make the decisions they do. And as a result, chose to study economics in college and knew that I wanted to build out my more technical understanding of how businesses function, how businesses make money. And so had the good, you know, the great opportunity to begin my career in public accounting and audit at KPMG, which is, which was fun, but a lot of hard work, but it was fun. It was more exciting than it sounds. I do not envy the path of a KPMG experience. I don't know. Did you enjoy it? Was it like worth the time you spent there or? It's an interesting question. I would say the work can be challenging. The hours can be challenging, but you do get, it's 
almost an inevitability that you get close with your team. So when you spend 80 plus hours with people in the same room, you're going to begin to get, I mean, you're going to love or hate each other, right? And I will say an odd side note, this is super random, but a side skill that I never would have anticipated getting during my time at KPMG is I'm pretty good at cornhole now because you always go to the client site to do these audits and we would play cornhole. There was one client I had for like four months and we'd play cornhole every lunch, every dinner. So again, wow. inevitably, right? Just quantity over quality in this case. But you play it enough, you're going to get pretty good. And, and now I'm, I'm half decent. It's exciting. You know what's fascinating too, and you had talked a little bit about your fascination with how and why businesses make decisions. I imagine that going through the audit process at these companies, you're getting the, uh, the other side of the coin there. You sort of see the results of their decisions. Was that visible to you during that time? <laughs> yes and no. So on the, it's interesting you mentioned that. I think I went from being super big picture, right? Initially, you know, as a kid growing up, you hear about these different things. Like I remember growing up, my parents would listen to the radio and you'd hear about like, oh, XYZ company stock is up, XYZ company stock is down. And I'll be honest, growing up, I had no idea what that meant. I didn't know. I didn't understand any of it, but I wanted to. And I will say moving into audit gave me the complete opposite perspective where I got really into the weeds really quickly, right? So you're looking at not only the amount of revenue a company generated, but you're looking into invoices for specific one-off line items on, on their uh, income statement. And sometimes you have to remind yourself to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. Be like, oh, okay, this, this is how this falls into you know this decision-making process. But it was interesting. I think of myself as a big picture guy, but working in audit definitely helped me hone my detail-oriented skills. Goodness, isn't that the case? My mom's a bookkeeper, so I sort of got a dinner table education in good financial practices. <laughs> but I don't think she even enjoyed the detailed degree you have to go to when you're trying to yeah, audit a large company's books. It's, whew, that's a lot of intensity. Yeah, it's definitely, I will say the people make the place, right? Like I have friends now for life, but was every moment of auditing riveting? No, definitely not. Definitely not. But again, cornhole. So pluses and minuses. Yeah. Uh, hey, you know, <laughs> you win some, you lose some. That's definitely. Exactly. <laughs> so after KPMG, where did you go? Like, how did you transition out of that? And what were your next steps? Yeah. So I know people always, I feel like people always say, oh, I kind of fell into sales. But in this case, it really is true. I worked at KPMG for two years. So the, your first big promotion when you're working at any big four accounting firm is moving to what they call senior associate. So I moved, you know, had the good fortune of being promoted to senior associate, got my CPA. I did know by the time I was promoted to senior that it's a silly joke, but I knew that I was much more drawn to the people than the spreadsheets, right? I was spending like 98% of my time in front of a computer and the 2% of the time that I was interacting with people, I was asking pretty hard hitting questions because you have to, you have to say, Hey, why doesn't the material you provided me, you provided me add up to what's in your financial statements, right? It's, it can get uncomfortable pretty quickly. So long story short, given that I knew I wanted to build on that foundation of business and financial knowledge, but interact more with people and have more of a client facing role, I chose to move to Fidelity Investments, where I began as what they call a financial representative. Now, at the time, I, I didn't really know what that meant, but it's the financial services world closest equivalent to an SDR. And what I mean by that is 
initially you are behind a desk. You're the person, if you've ever walked into a Fidelity branch or you know Charles Schwab branch, those are the people that often stand behind the front desk. But during your time that you're not helping people with more customer service and one-off questions, you are cold calling, cold emailing with the goal of booking appointments for advisors. So again, at the time, I didn't fully appreciate how that would begin my sales journey, but that really was the impetus behind all of this and kind of the rest of my career up until this point, which I can go into more, but that was where I initially moved, which was super exciting. Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of curious about that transition moment then, because obviously you're going to read a job description for financial representative and you go, hmm, is this me? So like, what what drew you to the role? (laughs) So the big thing, and again, I can't overemphasize this, at the time, I was just so excited to have the opportunity to interact more with people. Again, I can't stress this enough that, you know, I've been in big audit rooms with big audit teams where one of my one of my favorite audit engagements was, you know, it was a pretty big team, it was like 18 or 20 people. And you kind of feel you're like you're in a second college environment, if you will, because with a team that big, you get close with people, you you develop great friendships. But on the flip side of that, I've also been in windowless rooms with two other people or just myself where you're very alone. It can feel lonely. It can feel slow. And when I saw that there was this opportunity that I could leverage to kind of pivot, still use some of the knowledge and skills that I gained at KPMG, but utilize all this knowledge that I learned in audit, but interact more with people, I was so excited. So I kind of stopped reading after (laughs) client facing, if I'm honest, but uh, it was incredible. And I will say too, there was a person who I spoke with from Fidelity who, this was December 23, third, I'm forgetting the year, but it was like two days before Christmas. And they spoke with me for two and a half hours about how much they love their job. And I was like, number one, golly, like if they're spending time right before Christmas and the holidays talking with some random person that doesn't even work at their company, it's got to be a great place to be. And they were so passionate about what they did. I was really, really intrigued. So shout out to them. They know who they are, but I was blown away. That's awesome. So you spent a couple of years doing intense audits of companies, and now you're suddenly in a sales role. Yeah. What was that transition like for you? Like, maybe better yet, like, what were some things that surprised you about that role that you didn't know walking into on your first day? My goodness, where to start? I would say initially, firstly, I didn't fully appreciate that I was moving into sales. I knew that I was moving into the path of a financial planner. And spoiler alert, I wound up moving you know, into, uh, they call it investment consultant, but that's where you begin to meet with clients. You know, you're doing cold outreach, but you're the closest equivalent of, if you will, a full cycle AE. You're doing cold calls, cold emails, but ultimately with the goal of booking appointments for yourself. And then those appointments can take a variety of paths, but sometimes you wind up going down the sales cycle of selling a managed account. So what I didn't fully appreciate was moving into sales. I knew that I enjoyed speaking with people, but you begin to start to build a repeatable process of what success looks like, right? So when I was a financial representative and trying to book appointments for advisors, I started to feel the rush, if you will, when you book an appointment, when you kind of achieve that, you know, like, like when you're an SDR and you book a meeting, you start to get that adrenaline rush. And then you start thinking about, oh, okay, wait, what did I say in that time? Like, what made that so successful? How can I do that again? And of course, there's not a silver bullet, right? No one approach works for everyone. But I started to appreciate how much I enjoyed the quantifiable aspects of working in a sales role. What I mean by that is, it's rare that you have the opportunity to truly quantify your performance and understand, hey, I 
booked X amount of meetings. I talked to, you know, Y amount of people. And how can I try to outperform myself tomorrow? And how can I try to outperform myself the next day and the next day? And I was really drawn to that. And I, I didn't really appreciate that at the time. I just knew that I wanted to talk more with people. But also, I'll be honest, got way more comfortable with rejection. I mean, I faced plenty of rejection beforehand, right? But it was, when you start working in a sales role, you just get more comfortable with it. It bothers you less. You stop overthinking interactions because you just have to move on to the next conversation, the next interaction. But I think of it kind of like an undervalued superpower that salespeople have that I don't know if everyone's aware of, right? You start to become more confident in yourself. You start to build a comfort with being uncomfortable. So I could go on, but that, that's just off the top of my head. I mean, there were so many things that I was bad at that I had to get good at. And one of those really was trying to build a repeatable process. Because initially I was just winging every conversation if I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> hey, most of us, yeah, I was about to say, most of us are probably doing that most weeks. Um, <laughs> whoops. What's interesting to me before we get into your tech journey is that I don't know what sort of wisdom there is in this arrangement, but it's fascinating to see like the parallels to like a full cycle AE, but in the investment world. And in some ways, how how the incentives are aligned inside managing wealth or, or managing a financial portfolio for somebody where that account executive or that account manager, or whatever their title is, is doing the traditional outbound prospecting, but also then managing those client relationships after the initial sale has been made. And I wonder if you think if that's like a wiser arrangement, maybe, than a lot of what tech does. But I don't know if you have a strong opinion about that. I'm sure there's pros and cons. There are definitely pros and cons. And I have an opinion on how I think that things could be improved. Let me be clear. I absolutely love Fidelity. And I think it is a really good experience for you to own really the entire client relationship, right? You are, there are people who I cold call. And in, I will say the sales cycle can be a lot faster. You could call someone, you book a meeting for the next day for yourself. You maybe close that. You could close that, that sale the next day, or maybe you do two meetings with that person, but you can close them within like less than a week. And then now you're their dedicated point of service or, you know, point of contact for all questions related to their financial well-being. Now, the great part is a lot of these financial services firms have a wealth of resources for if someone starts to get really in the weeds of retirement planning and to the point where they're wondering, hey, how can I do a backdoor Roth conversion with X amount? And what do I do about this? And what do I do about that? There are resources that you can connect them with. So you don't, you're kind of like a primary care physician, right? If they need a specialist, you can refer them to a specialist. But I think it's a good place to start because you begin to understand that the people that you're speaking with, as obvious as it sounds, are people. They are more than just the closed sale or whatever the case may be, because you own the relationship, right? I think sometimes in the tech world, I think there's a lot of great and I think there's a lot of thoughtful AEs, but I think that those qualities tend to be more valued in account manager type roles or in a customer success type roles, where in financial services, you do really need to lead with empathy because if not, you might close a lot of business, but you'll get so much, your retention will be absolutely terrible. And that affects your comp, right? So it's an interesting dynamic. I was very grateful to start there because I think it gave me just a broader appreciation for what it's like to be on the other side of these conversations. That's super interesting. I think I want to return to that in a little bit. But first, you got an SDR job at Unit Q after Fidelity. So like, 
talk to me about that transition because that is a leap for somebody for you know who's this sort of investment consultant at Fidelity. What brought you into to Unit Q? I will say my career is a lot of things, not necessarily linear, but it has been fun. <laughs> that's why this series exists, Caspian. You know, that's the point. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate it. gives me a chance to unpack it a little bit more, which I appreciate. So yeah, two years at KPMG, were, then moved to Fidelity as financial representative, worked my way up to investment consultant, and had been at Fidelity for about two years, really enjoyed it, and was starting to get pretty comfortable with their, what I'll call their sales process. Again, you do a lot more than sales, but that is definitely a strong element of, of what you do. For context, I'm the youngest of four. I have three older siblings. At the time, two of my three older siblings worked not only in tech, but in sales roles. And they, you know, I speak to them every day and they they were mentioning, hey, you know, if you enjoy sales, you got to give tech a go. There's so many incredible companies solving really interesting problems. And I knew I enjoyed sales. And so I said, hey, you know, who am I to say no to what I don't know? And uh, so after, you know, doing some networking and things like that, I was fortunate enough to get an SDR job at Unit Q, which was a really interesting pivot because I went from being you know, I would say a small fish in a big pond, right? Fidelity is a giant company to a small fish, but in a, in a small pond. I was one of three SDR, you know, I was the third SDR hire. I supported the head of business development. You know, we were, a, at the time I was hired a seven person sales org. So it was really intriguing. And it was a huge pivot, not only moving to tech, not only, you know, moving to like new industry, new role. But what was exciting is being able to have a strong voice in in the go market process, right? I was writing sequences, like not just email templates, but I was constructing the sequence, learning things from like Sam, the Sam Nelsons of the world, the Devin Reeves of the world, trying to understand, hey, what are the what are the best thought, like thought leaders on LinkedIn suggesting I do and how can I try to emulate that? I will be honest, I was not very good, especially when I started. I was, I mean, your experience can sometimes give you uh, tunnel vision for what you think works. At Fidelity, I was always on the phones. I was all about the phones. Emails were, I thought emails were a pain. I would only send follow-up emails after meetings, but I had a higher ROI. I could do calls faster. So I would only call. Now, let me be clear, cold calling is not dead, but in tech, there's so much more of an emphasis on omni-channel, on taking an omni-channel approach, which I do think is important. And we can definitely touch on that, but it was a huge shift if you're used to calling 30 people and getting, you know, three to seven meetings and you call 30 people and no one picks up, let alone wants to take a meeting, it's a big change. And so it was, it, I will be honest, it was humbling, but it was a really exciting change. And I, I was definitely not expecting how different it was going to be, but it was super exciting. And I'm super grateful for that experience. That's cool. Yeah. What was the onboarding experience then like for you coming from financial services to come into tech sales? What was that like week one like for you? <laughs> it's a good question. Honestly, week one was me. I was being onboarded by another SDR because again, you know, as a seven person sales work, there's no enablement. What's that? You know? So I will say shout out to one of the SDRs that onboarded me. And it's funny, I'm really close. I'm still close with uh, a few of the SDRs there. Just given that again, you, you know, you're in the trenches together, but really they had, I remember they had a binder that was because I was the third SDR hire, but the second SDR had only started maybe like a month and a half before I started, it was really trying to understand what had that first SDR done, what had worked and what hadn't worked. 
And he had kind of built up like a binder. I remember a physical binder. I mean, like taking me through what had worked, what hadn't worked. But to his credit, like he's just an SDR, but he did everything he could to show me like, hey, this is what I've done. This is what has worked, what hasn't worked. But when you're only one person, there's only so much you can do and you can try. And he also had actually made a career transition also from financial services. So we bonded over that. But he was, um, it was a very different experience than the really formal onboarding that I got from, you know, my branch manager when I was at Fidelity. So I would say it was a, truly the biggest takeaway that I had from onboarding was like, there's so many resources in tech, especially on LinkedIn, try to find who's doing it the best and then emulate that. So that's where I got really into, you know, for lack of a better term, like LinkedIn stalking people and going through like super old posts and being like, oh, like what did Sam Nelson say? Like way back, you know, when he was, you know, not leading at which is uh, SDR org, but like, you know, just a manager or an SDR or whatever the case may be. And it was a very empowering experience because I began to figure out what worked and, and what didn't in my own experience. The thing that stands out to me about this experience too, is it's, you had this very detail-oriented job. You knew you wanted to leave to be more with people. Okay, well, I went and did that. It was a bunch of fun. Maybe I'll give tech a go. And now suddenly you're in tech. And like, I always think about, I don't know if it's learning or is development or growth, but to me, there's always two parts of it. One of which, yes, is learning new things. But then the other half is unlearning the things that you thought used to work. And unfortunately, they don't work anymore. Like what you were talking about with cold calls, and your expectations about their uh, efficacy and how well they'll work in your job. And what I wonder then for you, Caspian, is like of the things that you had picked up from your t-shirt sales in the mall all the way through financial services, what were a couple of things maybe that you had to unlearn that when you got into tech? I would say always being willing to try new things. I will say I definitely became especially at Fidelity, I felt I knew what made me successful. And as a result, there was no, and I don't want to say that I wasn't open to, to new things, but I guess I would say that I thought I knew what I needed to do to be successful. So why would I try writing a new email format if I had just written off emails? You know, and I'll, I'll be honest, at the time I was, I was younger, I, I have a lot of maturing to do, but I, I definitely think I, I could have been more mature with some of the decisions that I made. But learning that you don't know what's best, right? You don't know what you don't know and being willing to embrace that unknown and try something that you're like, hey, I don't know if this is going to work, but regardless of whether it works or doesn't, that's another data point that you can kind of build off of. So that's a huge one. What I have to unlearn up until that point, I will say, I think being, I had a vision of what I thought like a salesperson or a financial advisor looked like. And I didn't necessarily always feel, if I'm being honest, like I could be myself in terms of, I really enjoy being goofy, making jokes and stuff like that. And I remember at Fidelity, I would always wear, it's funny they were wearing glasses, like I would always wear blue light glasses because I thought there's no way that soon to be retirees will take financial advice from a 25 year old because I wouldn't, you know, like I'd be like, go kick rocks, you know? And so again, I was very business like, like, hello, I want to manage your money and stuff like that. And I would say that I began to learn when I moved into tech that you can embrace being yourself because maybe that's your competitive advantage. For context, since then, I really leaned into, you know, you called out earlier, like making memes, stuff like that. I've begun to lean a lot more into just who I am naturally. And that has been, I feel, a competitive advantage. Now, there are things that I do well. There are also things that I don't do well. But 
I don't need to pretend like those things that I don't do well don't exist. I can embrace them. I can understand how to double down on what I'm good at and how to improve on what I'm not good at. And it's okay. My point is, I think I thought you had to be perfect in everything. And as a result, I began to kind of have like a work version of myself that wasn't always completely authentic to who I am. Not that I was more so just in the way that I would conduct myself. You know, I'd be very formal, very professional, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's all right to make a joke every once in a while. It's okay to, you know, smile, whatever the case may be. That was a huge part. So really just embracing who I am and learning that, you know, we all have shortcomings. That's okay. But where can I leverage this to, you know, how can I better build rapport with someone with humor that I maybe couldn't do when I was trying to be overly formal? Right. I have a couple of questions about like your background and how that has like helped you as you've moved from Unit Q into Gong and now a senior SDR. But like, why'd you start making memes, Caspian? Because <laughs> you post a lot of great memes, very niche humor. They're great for LinkedIn. If people are listening to this and they have not followed you like they should it's a chuckle every time but like was this part of this like realization to be more goofy and like why did you start creating memes i feel like i compliment you on every question but that really is a phenomenal question it's funny i was just reflecting on this really what this came out of was a conversation that i had with a mentor earlier this year to make a really long story short i had a conversation in June, May, June with this mentor of mine. And I was talking about things I enjoy about my job, things that I maybe want to change in my own personal life. And had talk, was speaking with her about some of the things I've done before in my life. And again, I've really always, like my whole life, I've enjoyed making jokes. Like growing up, I always wanted to be class clown. Again, I don't know if I was, but I was definitely disruptive. So I feel like I checked a box, you know, it's, I was in the running for sure. At least I hope so. That's who I was. And, and I think, and you know, throughout college, like all that. And I think a part of that, I would begin to show that once I got more comfortable with people during my corporate career. But I will be honest, part of that went away when I moved into the corporate world because I felt that I needed to be extremely formal, extremely professional, which let me be clear, of course, professionalism is important, but especially in tech, People are celebrated for, like, you can just be yourself, is my point. You don't need to be this perfect person because no one's perfect, right? Spoiler alert. And there's things that everyone does well and does poorly. And to make a, I know I said, now I'm making a long story long, in this conversation, my mentor told me, Caspian, I think you know what it is that you want to do. I think you've been too scared to pursue it, which was super eye-opening because number one, how often are we spoken to like that anymore? I mean, meaning just so frankly, I love that. It was so refreshing. I wish, and I'm guilty of this. I can sometimes sugarcoat things. I can try to be overly polite. I loved how just real she was with me. And this was in reference to, you know, I'd mentioned that I'd done some like comedy stuff before that I really enjoyed. And so I tried to think about, hey, how can I work this into my everyday life? Like, how can I embrace more of this like goofy, fun loving side that I have, which is a huge part of me. Like, I love. Truly, I love making people laugh. Like I think of people as kind of like, it sounds odd, but in my mind, it's kind of like people are like slabs of marble. And as you throw out jokes, you begin to understand like what people's sense of humor is and you, and everyone is a different one, right? I joke around differently with my sister than I do with my brother, than I do with some of my friends. And just because everyone has a unique sense of humor. And I love discovering that. Like I truly, it's the most rewarding thing for me. Basically, I began to understand like, hey, how can I bring this into my job that I have? And I felt like memes were a fun way to begin to bring this side out and also let people know that they're not alone, right? Like SDRs get, with my friends at Gone, we call it like getting dunked on, right? Like I get dunked on on the phone by prospects all the time. 
And it's okay, right? Like, it's funny to be like, like, where else can you get cussed out one call and then have an amazing call the next call and these ups and downs. And it's funny to make light of it, right? And also, like, I also really enjoy being the butt of my own joke. So if, if me making light of my day, like helps even just one person smile or chuckle a bit, to me, that's a win. I, I love doing that. So that's why I began getting into memes. And I've really come to enjoy it. And I have huge plans for the future for continued content creation. So I'm, I'm super excited. Like I am 2023 is going to be the most impactful year of my life without a doubt. And I'm extremely excited. Like I can't stress that enough. My family's sick of me talking about this, but I am so excited. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think there's a classic. You might have it pinned on your profile. And if you don't, then somebody's going to have to LinkedIn stalk you because you made a silly Halloween themed song and music video about getting ghosted and there are actual ghosts or or the white cloth that she, you know, clothes. So funny. It's a couple minutes long. So everybody's listening to this. You got to go check it out. It's just perfect on brand sort of stuff. I hope you continue to make memes. I can't wait to see what you do with it because I really do think it's such a great little niche. One thing that I kind of want to leap to and this sort of folds back in some of your experience. Now that you're an SDR, do you find yourself sort of incorporating the financial and business knowledge that you learned both through your degree, but then also through your experience into like the way you're prospecting and the ways that you're having conversations with prospects? Does that like bubble up in conversations? Oh yeah, one 100%. I would say for me, especially when I'm cold calling, emailing as well, but especially when I'm cold calling, I know personally my strength is building rapport. So building rapport quickly, because if I'm honest, where I definitely can improve is objection handling. I'm fine. Like, again, I'm, I know myself well enough that I'm fine at objection handling. But if I am going to win someone over, it's going to be because initially I build rapport and then I you know provide value, of course. But I lean hard into that. And depending on the person, you can understand pretty quickly whether someone's going to be more relationship-based or knowledge-based, meaning like what they care about. So if I'm speaking to someone who, you know, maybe a bit more formal, a bit more business-like, and you're trying to do research on their company and you find out that they have, have had record profits in the last year or, or not done well, right? A lot of companies right now, unfortunately, aren't doing well. You can begin to weave some of that in, especially with public companies. You can read their 10Ks, you can read recent financial statement filings. And fortunately, you know, I'm, I'm not a financial whiz, but I can understand what's being said, at least in, you know, I know like the fundamentals of financial speak. And so I can actually speak semi-knowledgeably about, you know, whether it's different product releases or revenue streams. And if I'm challenged on that, I'm happy to go down that path, right? Like people can I don't, pro you know, I gong, I talk to a lot more of like VPs of sales, stuff like that. But if I ever needed to speak with a CFO, or if there's a CRO that's really, what I'll say, like finance heavy, you know, there are CROs that I've spoken to who are CPAs, I am comfortable diving a bit deeper into some of their goals that are outlined on their 10k. And also, I know where to look, right? Like a lot of times in the beginning of a 10k or in the footnotes, you'll find really interesting information on what the goals of the company are, you can quote their CEO to them. Yeah, I would say it definitely is a an asset that I'd like to leverage more because I probably could do better financial related prospecting than I currently do. But I see it as a benefit for the reasons that I mentioned, right? I can kind of dive into their 10K, their financial statements a bit more, which is which is exciting, which is fun. Yeah, it's interesting too. 
that you had sort of delineated on like relationship oriented versus knowledge oriented prospects and like the ways that you're building rapport and both being aware and mindful of those preferences as you're talking with somebody, but then also like tailoring your upfront research or tailoring the ways that you're reaching this prospect based on your skill set. And I, I don't know, I find that so cool because like every person we've had on this series has and leverages their own skills and their own background to understand and to like reach prospects in the way that makes the most sense to them. They're like, everyone has found their own superpower. And I love hearing you sort of articulate the ways that you found your superpower through trial and error, but also just like knowing these are my strengths. And I find that really, well, I'll use powerful again, but I'll, I find that really powerful. I love that. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's, and I will say just to jump in there briefly, it's funny because my, I'd say he's my best friend at Gong, this guy he actually just got. I won't name his name because I want to keep his anonymity if he wants it. But my best friend at Gong it has the complete opposite skill set where he's good at building rapport for sure, but he is the best objection handler. I've literally had the pleasure of knowing. And so it's just interesting. When I started at Gong, I would try to make cold calls like him and it's just not my strength. Like it's just not the way it, for me, I know pretty early on if there's a like if I, there's a strong likelihood I'm gonna get a meeting. He can sit in uncomfortable situations on the phone that I just would be mortified by, right? If I can send someone's like trying to push me off the phone, I'm like, oh, okay. No, we spoke before the podcast, but like the people pleaser in me is like, oh, okay. Like, you don't want to talk to me. That's okay. You know? Do you think that comes from your experience at Fidelity? I don't mean to cut you off, but like because you were like, well, it's in part of it's like, oh, I'm confident and skilled in phones. And so like you understood the signals that somebody would give you that they were willing to have a meeting with you and, and then the likelihood of closing that maybe that experience developed a lot of that pathway, but maybe not the other one? Short answer, yes. I think when I think back to my cold calls at Fidelity, I'll be honest, you have a lot of great ammunition when you're talking with prospects because it's, now some people are incredibly knowledgeable about their finances, which is incredible and I respect, but normally you are the expert. You're like you're calling and you truly are the expert you likely know a bit more about their finances and what's available to them than them. So it's rare, like that was a huge benefit. And if it ever went to objection handling, like there's not really, they might have an objection to taking a meeting, but you know so much that like you really can be the authority and conversations don't really go the objection handling route. That's what I'm trying to say in a, in a really long-winded way is you establish credibility really early on. And then if it goes objection handling, route, which normally it wouldn't, like they'll ask like one or two questions, you show you're knowledgeable and then boom, meeting. At Gong, you know, I'd like to think I'm knowledgeable on Gong, but people, VPs of sales, CROs just are more knowledgeable on their own sales process than I am. I'm calling to try to understand what their go-to-market process looks like, if there's a fit for Gong. And as a result, if it goes the objection handling route, it's just a muscle that I'm still building. What I'm trying to say in a really long-winded way is that at Fidelity, it really didn't go that objection handling route because again, I'm the authority calling. Like I know I'm all about finance and like you're, you know, I can provide you real value right away. But as you're gong, you're still figuring out about what their go-to-market process looks like and then trying to see, okay, does gong fit in where, you know, if so, where, and, and uh, it can go the objection handling route, which is just not my strong suit, but we're working on it. Hey, you know, <laughs> we'll have things we get we get to work on over the course of our career. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. So as we get close to our time, end of our time together, I, I've been asking this question, and I affectionately call it the gray hair question. 
I have a few of them, sadly. I don't know what why. But as you think back on your career, and particularly as you transitioned into to tech, like what is a piece of wisdom you've learned through your experience that you feel is important to pass along to new sellers? I think embracing Understanding who you are is key because when you're honest with yourself about what your strengths are and where your weaknesses are, you can get a good understanding of what's going to be successful for you and how you can stand out from the crowd, right? Right now, especially in a post-COVID world, executive leaders are getting so many cold calls, so many emails each day. You do need to do something to be unique. And the best way to be unique, I think, is to understand where do your unique strengths and weaknesses lie, right? For me, again, I love being goofy. I love building rapport. And I have begun to, you know, I've built out, especially at Gong, like a bit of a strategic gift-giving approach. And, you know, we can touch on that or, I, you know, it's uh, I could do a whole other conversation on that. But it took me being honest with myself about what I can do to be unique and what I enjoy doing. Because if you don't know who you are, um, or if you don't try to play to your strengths, I think you're at a disadvantage. So ultimately, understanding who you are and embracing those unique strengths and doubling down on them is something that I wish I'd done earlier just in my career. And something that I think if I was starting again, I would love to know. That's what I would say. So good. I love that piece of wisdom. I wish I had heard that as a younger person too in this industry and really embraced it early on. Cause yeah, now it's like, all right, yeah, I, I, okay, I figured it out. I'm going to go the direction that I know is right for me. So thank you for sharing that wisdom. It was so good. Caspian, if people loved this conversation, they want to see your memes, they want to follow up with a question, where should they go? Yes. My LinkedIn is probably the best place to reach me. So if you search Caspian Lukey, and that's C-A-S as in Sam, P as in Peter, I-A-N as in Nancy, last name L-E-W-K-E at LinkedIn, you can find me half man, half meme, you know, message me, DM me. I'm, I'm uh, pretty quick to respond as long as it's not over the holidays. So, uh, you know, I'd love to connect with anyone. And, you know, again, I love networking. I love meeting new people. So please feel free to reach out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and for this excellent episode. It's been great to hear your story and to hear all of the wonderful lessons you've learned along the way. So thanks again for joining. Thank you, Morgan. It was a pleasure being here. Did you love today's episode? Subscribe now to have our three weekly episodes waiting for you. And if you really like our content, please leave a five-star review. But if you're not ready to give us a review, check out another episode and follow us on LinkedIn. We'd love to win you over. See you next time. See you next time.